call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 19 of Call It Friendo, the podcast where two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Andy J. Ritchie, and my co-host Donna Katirnan watched two films from Australian director Peter Weir, 1982's The Year of Living Dangerously, and 1986's The Mosquito Coast. As always, this podcast contains spoilers for both films right from the start. Check out justwatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. I think about you on the toilet. What have you been watching this week? Indeed. I watched Soul, finally. I know you've seen it. Oh, did you enjoy it? I thought it was fine. I did not like it as much as I think you might have. Oh, I loved it, yeah. I th- I... It changed your life. And uh, no, I don't think I don't know how there are many p- films that have changed my life. No, not really, but um, I, I don't know. The crying I... game. <laughs> I just realized what it's I was relevant. into with that it's one. Re- it's relevant for today. Um. Yeah. No. I. I got a like. I just don't know. I really got a good buzz out of it. I just thought because uh, I, I, generally speaking, I can't think of another film that me- fucks around with the afterlife well. You know that I've seen the idea of it, and I think I don't know. I just thought that, and plus, I, yeah, probably I, not well. Like, have you ever seen? A, it's a mad movie. What dreams may come. Yeah, that's the first thing I was thinking of with Robin Williams and Cuba Gooding Jr. Yes, that's a mad old. I movie. remember that. That is a mad. That's a mad, mad movie. Did, did his wife commit suicide, and so she goes to hell? Yeah, and he rescues her. And out then of he hell. dies, and he has to go from heaven down to hell to rescue her to rescue her from hell. That is a really disturbing movie. It's bananas, and Robin Williams lives in a painting. He lives in his wife's painting, so everything's covered in right. paint. Um, yeah, I. A little tidbit of information I recall seeing in an interview that it is Ricky Martin's favorite movie. Oh, thank God. Indeed. I always wanted to know what Richard Martin is watching. There, uh, There is another, it's a very famous one, a Powell and Preskerberger film that I haven't watched yet called uh, A Matter of Life and Death. I haven't seen that, um, which is appar- no, appar- I, apparently very good. I know who Ricky Martin is. That's the level of uh, <laughs> reference for me. Ah, you mean the Living La Vida Loca? Yes. I am aware. What are there any other afterlife films that you can think of? I'm sure there are, just not off the top of my head. Um, there must be, but I just can't think of any of them. Um, I Ooh. found Soul to be so you quite Soul. What else? inducing though. How? Why? Because just something about it, probably like the Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross score, and just the him trying to escape his inevitable demise as there's a conveyor belt going <laughs> to the afterlife or the, that he's trying to escape mm. it's just i don't know that that first part of the film was really i felt my i just felt like i was almost having a panic attack something about how it was filmed i don't know i just it made me really uncomfortable huh the first 30 minutes or so one thing that like I've one criticism I've heard level that it is like how in god's name is that a movie for kids you know? Oh, he's definitely not for children. That's insane. I don't know why Pixar decided to make that film. But on that same hymn sheet, could you not sing that neither is um, Inside Out? Coco? 
Inside Out. I don't, yeah, I guess quite a lot of those films are more geared towards adults. Inside Out, I guess, could give children like an understanding of their emotions, but possibly. Do you think? I guess it's just, yeah, but this, watching Soul for a child is just kind of like, hey, you're going to die, kitty. <laughs> Look forward to this. Yeah, I mean, probably you're not. You're not going to achieve your. The thing I did like about Soul is he achieves his dream and then he realizes how empty and hollow it is, <laughs> which yeah, is a fun realization like, for people to come to. I've seen I, many times. Do you know what was a jarring vocal performance for me though? Altogether was Graham Norton. Yeah, I, I was. I did I, ask that question. Why did Graham? How did Graham Norton get cast in a film, in an animated film, especially? I think it's. It's an odd moment of Pixar completely not understanding how big Graham Norton is and how iconic and recognizable his voice is on this side of the Atlantic because it's just like... There's no way it's not Graham Norton. Do you know what I mean? It can't be a homeless guy. But maybe guy's... they don't care. Yeah, that's true. You're right. It's not... he Exactly. You see Graham Norton. You don't see some... Mm. Some guy spinning a sign on a New York street well, corner. Well, I and original G's like me don't even hear Graham Norton. We hear uh, Father Noel. Well, Father Noel, of, of course. course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what, I, that's what I thought we were referencing. <laughs> You've got a very nice voice, Ted. Very like Celine Dion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Love it. My first exposure to gay priests. And my last. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I've been watching uh, the second series of The Expanse. Uh, I don't. Oh, oh right. Okay. I don't binge shows that so much uh, after because I find if I just binge a bunch of series in a row, then I start kind of stop taking in the show. So I do one series at a time, and I watched the first series of The Expanse a couple of years ago. Finally got around to the second one. I have to man, it's so awesome. I absolutely love it. It gets so much better. Like season four is great. I've heard that's the You've one where they're all go. on a planet together. Yeah. But, like, I mean, it's not just the broad sci-fi strokes and, like, you know, the politics. Like, even the characters are, are interesting. Like, the, the, your man Amos and his whole backstory and where where he... Like, the, all the crew members are just yes. interesting people, like. You get to see some of Amos's backstory in season five because he goes back home to Baltimore. He's from Bodymore Murderland. He's from... He's from, he's from Bmore. Mm. Good God. And what a... What a oh, yeah, I also finished... A, warrior and cobra kai so in a very kung fu kind of mood this week i'm still i still have three more episodes of season three of cobra kai what do you think of cobra kai i really enjoy it i know how awful it is oh i love it in many ways it's like fast food but it's i think it's great it's it's so much fun i absolutely love it and i think like of all the kind of attempts attempts to you know um i don't know cash in on nostalgia cash in on nostalgia for some reason, the angle that they decided to take with that works far better. It does. And comes yeah. away with much more respect than any of the others. And I think I the, the setup was just the fact that neither of those actors had that successful of careers after Karate yeah. Kids. So they were up for whatever. I think that's... Absolutely. That was, that was their life. They're both completely defined by those roles. So why not just dip back into them 30-odd years later? And it's funny, bec- but... For me, it's funny for me in particular, but there are, for some reason, 
hopeless drunks in films just really tickle me. I think it's maybe it's just because I can relate to it. But I just think it's a <laughs> I just think it's a really funny predicament, and it just always makes me laugh. <laughs> so like I was won over from uh, day one on that, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I re- and uh, Warrior is great too. Jonathan Tropper's other. Uh, I need to check this out. I yeah. have no idea what this is. I know you've. Well, if you like Banshee, you'll like this. Well, I still have a ton of Banshee to watch. I've only watched the first season and one extra and one more episode. I've only watched the first season too, but like I'll do my my staggered watching thing. Um, just Warrior, Warrior is based on an original concept and treatment by Bruce Lee. That is absolutely correct, and he stand wow. he stood by he stars um, in it. Wow, his view that they stole his concept and developed the show Kung Fu with David Carradine. Ah, mm. bastards! Nice. I need to check this out. Right, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. It's good. It's fun. I, I like. Yeah, I, quite I, I, enjoy. I want some more things like that. I just want some again, some more throwaway type fun things. Have you ever watch. watched Bosch? No, that's another one that I plan to do. Once it, I'm kind of waiting for the things like that. Once they're completely finished, is that done now? Has that mm, been cancelled well, at this point? Yeah, but the or last season is to come point. out. It's it's uh, it's got one more season yeah. to go. Because I, I wait until they're completely done so I know that I have a completed story that I can enjoy and it's not just going to disappear halfway through. Ah, so I will eventually get around that with Titus Welliver. Oh, I also started watching The Stand. Have you continued? Oh, okay. Have you continued with The I Stand? I will. I will. No, I haven't, watched, I haven't watched the last episode. I have it. I just haven't watched How it. How many episodes have there been so far then? Four. Three or four. I'm not mad about the time jump. I don't know why they did that. Uh, yeah, there have been four episodes, and I haven't watched the fourth one. The the time jumping it completely yeah, bugs I, me. I mean, this is Reddit, the uh, the stand subreddit, and uh, on Reddit is just full of people moaning about that. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, because yeah. I, I like the book is just so literally a solid everyone is start to finish Odyssey. You know, you you really uh, eke through the chronology in it. That's what all the arguments are. Basically, people saying that it's important to see the progress of the of Captain Trips taking hold, and then people surviving, and then making their way out to out to Boulder. Mm. But I think the argument, the reason for doing it, was also there's already been the '90s miniseries, so I think they just wanted to approach it from. Well, probably the reason they wanted to do it out of order was to go like, "Hey, we're going to cash in on the like." Tarantinoism or the whatever non-chronological storytelling that's taken place since then. I actually don't. Uh, I I just I don't even think so. I think it's kind of like for some reason I think it's a lazy writing trope that so much TV has fallen into recently. That'll just show you here's what we'll give you. Now stick with us for six episodes, uh, and it fucking bugs the shit out of me. Do you know? Mm. It'll just go like show you a big a big exciting thing and then two years earlier anyway yeah i remember when breaking bad started getting involved in some of those shenanigans especially towards the end have you seen and, better uh, call Saul people yet people were angry yeah I've, I've watched everything that's out god that's I'm great up to date with that yeah it took me a long time to actually fully get around to it but during lockdown i watched the majority of it so beso- i liked it it gets a lot better that's another show that gets better be besides uh, that, we of course watched uh, the two films for these this week. Uh, did you enjoy them? Yeah, I did. Um, I think I enjoyed the first one more than the second one. You enjoyed the Year of Living Dangerously more. 
Mm-hmm. More than the Mosquito Coast. Yeah. Huh, interesting. I enjoyed the Mosquito Coast. You're the more. other way around. Yeah, yeah, completely. Mm. Uh, the Mosquito Coast really grabbed you me. you identify with uh, Harrison Ford's character, Ali Fox, in the Mosquito Coast, whereas it- I identify with Billy Kwan. <laughs> Uh, in what way well we'll get to the mosquito coast uh, coast i suppose uh, and you can tell me how i identify with harrison ford's character then i need to start remembering the names of characters i was just accusing you of being a cunt (laughs) (laughs) yeah i remember he's called ali fox (laughs) all right yeah fair enough he's a bit of a continent isn't he he's that's the least any we'll get to that that's Mm. the least likable harrison ford performance on film that i can think of yeah certainly it's just a dickhead Anyway, it's watchable though. Okay, well, so shall we? Shall I get fired into the first film? Let's do it. So your choice was the year of living dangerously. Why? What was it that originally attracted you to this? Just because it was a, a Peter Weir film? That's it. That's all it was. I remember, yeah, just reading an article years ago and deciding, oh, I'm going to have to fill in the blanks on his filmography someday, and got so far and never finished it off. But this is one that kind of intrigued me. Um, mm. Just, you know, period setting, journalist story seems kind of like a Graham Greene novel. It's, yeah, this kind of thing would be my similar to the quiet uh, American, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would be right. Or like. Reminds me of that. I, I never watched either of the films for that, though. I've, I've read the book, but. Um, oh, I did. I watched the one with uh, Brendan Fraser and, and Michael, Michael Caine. Caine. Yeah, yeah. Michael Caine. Yeah. I don't know. That was the worst impression ever. I thought it was excellent. Thank you. Uh, so, The Year of Living Dangerously is a 1982 Australian romantic drama directed by Mr. Peter Weir, as you said. It's an adaptation of the 1978 Christopher Koch. Apparently, Ooh, it's pronounced very Koch. Matu- very mature K-O-C-H. of you to say it like that. No, that, that's how he pronounced it. Christopher Koch. His na- obviously, his name was Koch. <laughs> Christopher Koch. Let's just go right C. back Koch. to his school days, will we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, Koch? You're, you're writing a novel, are you, Koch? <laughs> Do you know what's really funny is I never put that together until you said, like, oh, yeah, that's very mature. I, I just read. I, I, when I read his name, I, I googled, how did he pronounce it? I, I actually went to the effort of finding out it's pronounced, and he pronounced it Koch. Uh, it never man. occurred to me that that was because it was actually cock. Your instincts are slipping. Anyway, I know, I know. I I chose to see the best in this, and I wanted to have respect for Mr. Christopher Koch. Anyway, so Christopher Koch wrote Time this was, 1978. Time was, he would have been all over that Indeed. So Christopher Koch wrote this 1978 <laughs> novel in which uh, a male Australian journalist a female British diplomat and a Chinese-Australian male dwarf interact in Indonesia in the summer and autumn of 1965. Mm. Was, it, was, was the year clear to you? Uh, Did it come up at some point? Well, no, not. I don't think they've ever indicated it, but I would, just from watching that documentary... Um, right, The Act of Killing. The Act of Killing, I would have known about the 30th yeah. September movement, so yeah, I, right. I knew that was around 65. Yeah. Yeah, so set primarily in the Indonesian capital city of Jakarta, it also depicts a partly fictionalized version of the events leading up to the coup attempt by the Communist Party of Indonesia, the PKI, as you mentioned, on September the 30th, 1965. Uh, the novel's title refers to the Italian phrase vivere pericolosamente. Fucking hell, I'm rubbish at Italian. Which means living dangerously. To live dangerously. They do live a bit uh, dangerously Indone- in it. We were, yeah. We, we see a few scenes of living dangerously. 
Anyway, so the title comes because it's from where the Indonesian president, Sukarno, who is depicted in the film, he used the phrase for the title of his National Day speech on the 17th of August, 1964. This is like a history podcast now. Mm, very clever. Mm, mm. So the film stars a 26-year-old Mel Gibson. He was 26, wow. 26-year-old Mel Gibson, a beautiful young man, a very handsome young man. Really was, yeah. Playing the the character of Guy Hamilton, a young Australian foreign news correspondent. And Sigourney Weaver, she was around 31, uh, playing Jill Bryant, an assistant at the British Embassy. Uh, however, the actor who walked away with all the plaudits and an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress was Linda Hunt. All right, here we go. Yeah, New York, a New York stage actress who played the role of Billy Kwan, a Chinese Australian man. So, so Linda Hunt. What did you make of that cast? She wasn't the first. Well, okay, she wasn't the first choice for the role. Did you read about any of the people that they were looking at? Uh, I read about one. Sounded like some kind of a song and dance man. That's right. They originally cast a dancer called David Atkins in the role, but they didn't. Uh, Peter Weir didn't like his chemistry with Gibson. Mm. <laughs> So they auditioned, among others, Bob Balaban. Who's Bob Balaban and, again? Uh, fuck, I'm trying to think what he's in. What is Bob Balaban in? He's in a lot of those uh, Christopher Guest films. I'm going to have a look at him. Like Best in Show and stuff like that. Is he not in Close Encounters of the Third Kind or something like that? Yeah, he is. He's in Close Encounters. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know who Bob Balaban is. Yeah, he's in Best. He's in Best in Show. He's in a bunch of stuff like that. So they were going to get Bob Balaban. That was one. They also looked at Wallace Shawn. No Chinese names. <laughs> Strangely, no. All of these people I've mentioned so far are wh- white men. Mm. And thankfully, they went for a more uh, appropriate choice and cast a white woman. This, um, this, w- this baloney would never fly nowadays, would it? No. But the thing is... Well, okay, so so to to accomplish the role during production, Hunt shortened her hair and dyed it black, wore padding around her waist, shaved her eyebrows, and carried something in her shirt pocket. But more importantly, she also wore yellow face makeup. I, like, maybe it's one of these instances where, I don't know, maybe it, my reaction to it was something Peter Weir was going to, but for me, that's never... A, Chinese dwarf man. I wonder. It's funny because I wouldn't. I I was trying to think if I would have thought anything about it, but similar to how you uh, ruined some other film for me. What was it Zardos. recently? Where you right Zardoz? You told me that you you gave away the the reveal in Zardoz. Yeah, right? it was an accident. Get so, over it. So you so you told me that Linda Hunt was playing a man in this film, right? Mm. So I spent the entire entire film going like, oh, yeah, so when is the crying game reveal coming? Because I just assumed it was still actually a woman. So the whole film, I'm going like, okay, when's, when's, she, getting her, when's, when's she getting the lads out? Like, what's happening? The, I was looking for a reverse crying game, and it never so came. So you thought it was a plot thing? Yeah, I was. I just. I. I didn't do it. I. I don't do research. Like I don't read up on the film before I watch it. I watch it and then I do. Then I read up on it. Oh, okay. So I just. I was kind of going like. Well, I was thinking, would I have noticed immediately that it was a woman? And do you think audiences in 1982 realized that it was a woman because she was? No one knew who she was. 
she wasn't famous at all she was a stage actress i'm not sure and i don't know like is there any way to fully gauge that uh and figure it out um like the she does the, the, the rev- tad dodgy uh I, yeah i like i just don't buy it really uh there's a picture here uh, of her and she looks uh, fine in, in the pic- in, in the in the picture i suppose but just the acting and the way she moves yeah yeah no it didn't buy it's it. it's a woman yeah 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 she is a woman yeah yeah for sure and yeah so that but may, i don't know maybe that's what they were going to they were going for it because as we'll get along to when we talk about the plot like um billy's role in it is kind of to be sort of an asexual object almost you know he's almost like quasimodo between esmeralda and uh yeah i don't know whatever the dude's name is from hunchback and Notre Dame. but you get the feeling but then there's they also have I think Linda Hunt has somewhere commented that there are layers of sexual tension. So even between her character and Mel Gibson's Guy Hamilton, there's a kind of tension there. And they were looking, I mean, Weir was looking for a chemistry that wasn't there with David Atkins, the guy that they hired before. Mm. Yeah. So I don't know if he was looking to create a sort of gay subtext with, although it's a female. Well, mm. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. The one thing that really impressed me about Linda Hunt was um, I thought I, I was shocked to find out that she was from the US. I thought her Australian accent was solid. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't pick her out as non-Australian. Let me say that. Mm, I would actually. Yeah. Fair enough. I would give you that. Yeah. yeah so I was uh, I thought, well done. Well done. you. Um, the only other thing about the Linda Hunt story was that this film has come under a lot of criticism in recent years, most notably when a clip of the film was shown in a montage at the 2018 Oscar ceremony, Why? prompting a Twitter backlash. Why? Oh, because she's doing yellow face. Because she's doing yellow, yellow face. So people were not impressed. Isn't it mad how times change? Because I'm sure this was thought of as really forward yeah, thinking and avant garde. Like ultra progressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no. Uh, the production was supposed to film in Indonesia itself before permission was withdrawn, meaning that filming actually took place in both Australia and the Philippines. For this reason, a lot of the actors in the film are Filipino mm. and not Indonesian. Peter, where you liar? <laughs> the cast and crew received death threats throughout the production after fears that the film would be anti-Islam. Oh, yeah, I read about this, and Mel Gibson uh, shrugged it off in typical uh, yeah. Mel fashion. He, he was quick to uh, put their fears to rest and said, of the Middle Eastern religions, I promise you, Islam is not the one I have an issue with. <laughs> I don't know if that's what I said, but we can imagine something along those lines. I mean, yeah, the rest of the cast and crew just getting death threats and Gibson getting fan mail from... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, nothing was ever uh, proven. Gibson... Uh, yeah he Uh, he brushed them off he said uh, if they're sending us letters they hardly want to kill us or something to that to that degree okay so moving into the story the film begins with mel gibson Mm -hmm. aka guy hamilton getting off the plane in jakarta and being taxied to the local bar where he meets all the other international journalists uh i don't know about you but i've definitely experienced these expat characters yeah. before, especially when i lived in tokyo uh well yeah i wanted to put a yeah i wanted to bring that up with you specifically uh, it, it, i think they did very well with that this weird kind of uh, surrogate family uh, vibe of people right. you don't actually like that much 
Right, and you meet in a bar and get shit-faced. Yeah, 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 in shit and bars. talk shit about the country that you are living in. Yeah. You are a guest. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yep. I, I've, in three different countries, I'd go as far as to say I, yeah. I've... Yeah, I know. I, I yeah. recognize this scene exactly. I thought they did well with that, and I thought they did well with um, just the notion of culture shock. I don't know if you ever experienced yeah. culture shock, but they, like Gibson's, uh, yeah. when he decides to uh, walk home or something, he's basically walking mm. through a, a, a rough neighborhood. It's just like, yeah. I, I, just, I remember when I first got off the plane in Bogota, and having mm. to just walk up the street to where I was staying, just being like, ah! of course, not, Gibson is not like that because he's a much uh, better man than I'll ever be. He was a 26 year old uh, hunk. I'm sure you were a hunk at 26 as well, though, as were as was I. Yes. So uh, the film, oh yeah, of course, the film is narrated by Linda Hunt's Billy Kwan throughout, which I appreciated. Yeah, I mean, thank it's, you, Peter Weir. It's a bit. Um, more uh, I don't know uh, introspective than the kind of hand-holding narration you normally like but that's fine I don't mind I don't mind if it's just characters telling me telling me what's happening or just expressing their inner emotions I'm I'm happy with all types of just don't show me tell don't show that's Mm. my motto don't show me anything (laughs) just a black screen and just characters explaining how they feel you're waiting for you're waiting for the film industry to or anything to fully evolve into an audiobook industry. Yeah, yeah, we got we got talkies and now we just need to remove the image completely and it will be perfect. Yard. Uh so it's clear that Hamilton is pretty green. However, Billy takes him under his wing and shows him the ropes including walking around some of Jakarta's slums. Uh there are a lot of guys with machetes calling Mel a capitalist pig, which is nice. Hamilton goes to Sukarno's presidential palace the next day and fails to get any interesting interviews. He files a story that his boss derides as boring when Mm. Billy offers to get him an interview with the leader of the PKI. Guy accepts and they form a team with Guy Hamilton as reporter and Billy Kwan as cameraman. Yeah. Um, It's all just set up so far. I mean, well, there isn't so much of a plot at the center of this so uh, so much as... Um, the background the background is what's important and the little like love yeah. triangle that makes up the center of the film is played off as relatively unimportant in in contrast to the the, the grand scheme of things yes i felt i mean this film is about a very 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 particular moment in history and exactly what happened and the fact that like you know gibson and sigourney weaver and to an extent billy are such um archetypal characters in terms of this type of story you know i mean this is casablanca this is uh the constant gardener that kind of thing it's just it, like it's much more about the backdrop than um the foreground in this this uh christopher kosh's novel i think is based on the experiences of his brother who was a journalist in indonesia in 1965 so i think really he just built the love story around trying to explain the fucked up events of uh, a communist coup, attempted coup, and then mm. leading into the the purges that we can talk about later that are shown in the act of killing. Well, yeah, I mean, or it's following in a grand tradition of, of, of stories like this. Like this is a way that this is a way that people enjoy telling history. I mean, 
another there's so many examples of it cold mountain is even another example of it that's a way to tell the american civil war for example you know i enjoyed cold mountain me too i feel like uh it kind of got shit on a bit but i i enjoyed charlie hunnam going like when he he gets uh who's the other person in it is jude law the star of cold mountain jude Jude law says to charlie hunnam like what makes you think you're gonna kill me and charlie hunnam goes the confidence youth Oh yeah, I remember that. Good, good. Uh, your reference game is sick, there, bro. Yeah, yeah. Obscure pool, but uh, that that line and the way Charlie Hunnam says it stuck with me forever. I, and I tell you what, by so the time they got around to making Cold Mountain, something like they had gone some ways towards I don't know, at least aspiring towards the aesthetic of the day. Because one thing you couldn't really say for the year of Living Dangerously, which despite all efforts does look like it's just the 1980s whatever i know that's what threw me i was like i was i I remember some fairly big events taking place in indonesia in the 1960s but uh i couldn't place (laughs) and i was like sukarno that sounds familiar but watching the film i couldn't place the time period yeah yeah. i certainly didn't think it was 1965 it's. I mean, it's the haircuts and everything it's just yeah there's there's no real effort for the period but but then bear in mind Bear in mind, there's, it's only a, it's less than a twenty year difference between when this occurred and when the film the filming took place. Yeah, it's yeah, it would have been seventeen years. 16, seventeen years. Mm. So, like, if we made a film now about two thousand and four, <laughs> yeah, it's not like point, it actually. would be massively different. So, it's probably us that's wrong here. We get to see a bit of the expat culture in the following bar scene. The other reporters are both jealous and dismissive of Guy's interview. The loudmouth American journalist Pete Curtis, who's an op-ed, pays a small dwarf to dance and also explains about the prostitutes he frequents up at the cemetery. Nice. Uh, In short, it's a pretty grim scene. Have Have you been to Southeast Asia? I have not. Have you? Me neither. No, but this is exactly what I imagine it's like. Yeah, that's fair. Dancing dwarves and men going to cemeteries with prostitutes. Yum. The two staples of Southeast Asia, indeed. So Billy takes Guy to a swimming pool, kind of country club, club place, um, or shit here, and introduces him to uh, Colonel Ralph Henderson, who works at the British Embassy, and his assistant Jill Curtis, played by Sigourney Weaver. Uh, this is the only film where Sigourney Weaver and Mel Gibson appeared together on screen. Okay. Uh, Guy flirts. Why is that Guy significant? A little. Were they an item? No or reason. Something? I don't know. No, because it's just a, ma- a famous, two famous people. You feel like they would have been in more than one film. Mm, yeah, because they do have quite good chemistry in the film. Yeah, but it's just funny they only occurred when one was in his, Mel Gibson was in his twenties and Sigourney Weaver was in her early thirties. But there mm. you go, because they've remained famous for so long. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, Guy flirts a little with Jill before losing a swimming race to the colonel. Billy and Guy get one of Guy's office staff, a man named Kumar, to drive them out to report on a big pro-communist demonstration. The protesters hurl rocks at the U.S. embassy before surrounding Billy and Guy's car. After <coughs> a bit of a scuffle, Guy gets his legs slashed by a machete-wielding militant what did you think of all these scenes? Because when I see people with machetes and guns, I would shit myself. Yeah, it looks really scary. I, th- I uh, thought that scene was well done for what it's supposed to get to you. I mean, it just it does, yeah. The, there's a sense of danger there. Like, but I, they just don't seem to give a shit, though. No, 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 and I think that's uh, that's brought across well, too. Like, I think... Uh, I, I'm a big 
fan of what Mel Gibson does. I think actually he's a similar type of actor to Harrison Ford from the next film in that like he doesn't have much range really but He's you know Mel when Gibson. he finds a project that works yeah kind of like but when he find like but there's a a strength to that as well like Robert Duval did that for his entire career as well but it's mm. just that certain type of charisma if you can find the right role to funnel it into and I think Guy Hamilton is perfect for um Mel Gibson because yeah he does not he's not really afraid of anything in the film and he should be for sure there's a couple of like there's one occasion later on where he gets attacked a little bit and he sh- should for sure be afraid of what's going on but he just isn't i mean and yeah, yeah i think uh, whatever about the way we are shot or the, the way we're shot this in in general is that point in particular the, yeah the it, it yeah feels dangerous it feels like you're in an unruly mob it's a good scene a year of living dangerously they're going to do 365 days of this so Back at Billy's house, Guy gets his leg patched up before stumbling across Billy's files, finding that Billy is keeping a file on on Guy, including lovingly cut-out action photos of the hunky Australian reporter in action running around. Mm. Uh, what did you think? Yeah, what did you think was going on at this stage? I don't know. It's never really it's never really explained fully what it is. I think he just kind of keeps records. I think he's a bit of a record keeper sort of a, a diarist of you know what i mean but i just wondered if you thought he was some kind of agent no i don't think so hmm. i don't think so i mean it basically comes across that he's not he's just a journalist hmm. but at that point i feel like i've seen the story so many times where the billy type character is working for the pki that's normally what happens in a in a lot of these type of stories yeah i didn't the quiet american good morning vietnam i didn't quite feel like it was going that way just because of the way the narration is delivered and it kind of feels like he's almost writing yeah that's a diary a sectioned diary that's the way i I felt it was and he seems like you know he's very yeah and i also feel like the fact that he seems like a completely desexualized individual completely almost asexual and you know so have you ever seen sex lies and videotape yes a long time ago so his his files are kind of like you know um his version of Mm. james spader's uh, videotapes of women talking about sex Mm -hmm. you just reminded me about a guy i used to work with uh in edinburgh when i worked at standard life many many years ago um you could i'm sure you can find this guy's work it's on youtube his uh his his name was joe but his artist name was whores of leith and he would interview he would go and interview prostitutes and then he plays really kind of unsettling ambient music underneath the interviews that sounds so, yeah, like check out the most check scottish out whores of leith <laughs> the most Scottish. He, he wasn't artwork. Scottish though. He's English. He's just Whores happened to Leith. be living. Can you in include Edinburgh. it in the show notes? But yeah, I check out Hors of Leith. Definitely, I'll find. He had his classic track is called Bangkok Fanny Rat. Hors of Leith discography. Yeah, Bangkok Fanny Rat. I will. I'll give it a go. That's a classic. Oh. Yeah, check that out. Yeah, so that's that's what I think of in this case. So anyway. Billy goes for a walk down through the poor riverside area of the city before stopping in at a woman's house. He gives a woman a big wad of cash and drops off a toy for her sick child. 
In the next scene, one of the British journalists, Wally, throws a big house party and invites the expat community. We see Jill from Guy's perspective, and it's clear that he fancies her. Mm. Uh, on the terrace, Billy observes Wally flirting with a male servant, uh, a fact which he files away for future ammunition. Is that pedophile stuff or gay stuff? Yeah, that's just that he's gay, but I'm guessing Indonesia in 1965 is not the best place to be openly gay. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, no, because... That's just why, an assumption. Because Billy kind of uses it against him later in it. Yeah, he throws it in his face, mm. like, in a fairly nasty way. Uh, the next day, Jill turns up at Guy's office to meet Billy, but Billy isn't there. Guy scrambles into gear to make sure he can hang out with Jill. They drive over to Billy's house to unsuccessfully look for him before heading to a dockside interview. The interview is erupted by a massive monsoon, so Jill and Guy return soaked to Guy's car. He drives her home, but Jill is leaving to return to England in a couple of weeks, so she doesn't want to get involved with him and rebuffs his advances. That's kind of like the meat of their relationship. What? And it's very lightweight. This whole that like this that's how them getting to know each other slash falling for each other scene and there's not really that much to it. That's their meet cute like. That's what exactly. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, but I kind of still so I buy it like particularly how like I think Gibson really plays just a total horn dog in those in the yeah those, he's 26 yeah, yeah. australian yeah yeah in those he's, in, he's in those kind of scenes and in particular like in the next scene where uh, he seals the deal uh, a few days later billy informs guy about a big event at the british embassy guy dresses in his finest suit with only a few stains on it and heads over he storms past the doorman flies over to jill beckons her outside then plants a kiss on her son's consent yeah, it's a great. Could you do smooch. this scene in a modern film? <laughs> Definitely. I thought it was. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, because she seemed to be up for it, didn't she? I know, but it's just uh, I don't think you'd get away with that now. I think that's assault. Which giving someone a smooch? Which part of yep. the smooch was not? I'm sorry good? to tell you. Well, but he, he kind of like shoves her up against the wall first. I don't know. Maybe I'm just old-fashioned, Andy. But I thought it was a perfectly legitimate good smooch. I actually have a note saying that I really enjoyed the smooch. I thought it was good. Okay, well, I have already alerted the authorities. They're on their way. Bollocks. So there's a a curfew in force in Jakarta, but Jill agrees to drive with Guy back to Billy's house for a shagging. Nice. Uh, In the background, (laughs) the song that plays is L'Enfant by Vangelis, uh, which was originally going to be the theme for Chariots of Fire before Vangelis decided that it was in fact shite and he should write a better one. <laughs> and he did. I mean, I don't know if he actually decided it was shite, but it, I, I, when, I listened to, when I heard that music, I was like, okay, this is Vangelis, but it does not fit with these two characters driving away from a party. Mm. Also... Well, that's the theme from Doug or something. It's not that, but it sounds a bit like that. it's not that but it's close to that in evangelist style well i thought i what i I thought was of all the houses to go to for shagging i mean billy's looks dirty it looks like a dirty filthy house well you're just 
you you know no one else is going to be there except for Billy to watch you. Oh yeah. Does he do that? Billy peeking his head. Well, he sees well, we he, we'll get to that in a second, but so they uh they in the car they're they're smooching passionately again while barely paying attention to the road. Driving dangerously. The year of driving dangerously. <laughs> Nice. Uh, that's the real name. They drive. They drive through a military roadblock as soldiers fire machine guns at them. Yeah, that's wow. Putting multiple holes in the car while they just laugh. Yeah, they great. Drive away laughing. Great crack there, guys. <laughs> as the Indonesian army attempt to kill them. <laughs> Would any relationship you were in? Survive being shot at with machine guns. I don't think I'd be able to no. look at the person ever again. Done be done yeah, yeah. you're Game not your trouble lady that's what i'd say yeah so billy when they're uh in the in billy's house uh enjoying themselves billy comes up and sees the uh bullet holes in the car and hears the sound of mel gibson and sigourney weaver in the throes of passion and is probably a little bit sick in his mouth <laughs> <laughs> or else really enjoys it I don't know what. He seems to have set the whole thing up. He does. He's a little uh, puppet master. Mm, little Cupid. Mm. Uh, after their shagging session, Jill reveals <laughs> to Guy that the... <laughs> I don't know if that's the best phrasing, but that's what I have. After their shagging <laughs> session, Jill reveals to Guy that the PKI are moving arms into the country, suggesting that a coup is on the cards... Guy tells her he's going to publish the story because he's a journalist and therefore a twat. Uh, Jill is less than pleased. When Guy tells Billy about his plan to publish the story, Billy is also less than pleased and feels that he has misjudged Guy Hamilton. I've, I'm kind of with, uh, with uh, Big Mel on this one, to be honest. Well, eventually Jill does come around and go like, yeah, you're a journalist and I told you the story, mm. so it's logical that you would print it. Yeah, I, I think is. I also don't like journalists, so no, I don't trust them. Wow, somebody's. Been I don't lit- trust. I don't trust anyone who reads and writes. <laughs> I mean, wow, you've really been keeping. So even though he got kicked off Twitter, you still found a way to get in contact with Donald Trump. That's nice. Oh God, yeah, absolutely. You're on Parlor, are you? So, mm-hmm. Ray Parlor, the former Arsenal winger. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Guy starts asking around for confirmation on the story, arousing the suspicion of the PKI leadership. Kumar drives Guy out of the city to a mountain retreat, where it is revealed that Kumar, who's one of, of Guy's office workers, uh, and another colleague, Tiger Lily, the beautiful Tiger Lily, are both PKI. Mm-hmm. And the Guy is on, a, is on a death list. He's on a PKI kill list. Hmm. Yeah. What did you make Look, of all that scene where they go out to the mountain retreat place? I think it's just more of an example of why the main story is not really important. It's about what's going on in Indonesia. We don't get to see a lot of what's going on in Indonesia, though. I mean, we we get told about it. Yeah, but that's that's how the like it, it these stories kind of function. Like, I mean, they go on I in the background, but. You like, for example, that's just a detour into like the PKI, basically, and you you like you get to you know see yeah. how deeply entrenched they are because those two characters we've known them the whole way we've known them throughout. He always gives him cigarettes, um, which 
for some reason, and I don't really, I don't smoke at all anymore, right. but the cigarettes in this film look delicious. I wanted to smoke the whole time while I was watching it. But also, like, it's just filling in more background in the film, really, you know what I mean? Yeah, and uh, because Kumar and Tiger Lily are kind of Guy's staff, two members of Guy's staff, but Kumar seems more senior than Tiger Lily in the office, but in the PKI, Tiger Lily is more senior than Kumar, so he's kind of like, listen, she's higher up in the party than me. I do what she says, and she wants to fucking murder you, son. Back in Jakarta, Guy goes with Pete out to the cemetery and we see Pete get swamped by a horde of prostitutes uh, living the American dream. Billy goes back to visit mm. the poor woman he was supporting and it's revealed that her son has succumbed to his illness and in a move that no doubt pleased you, Donica, we get to see some young boy penis. Yes, we do. Uh, get it mm. to see it being washed. Yeah. Um, which is very important uh, this is degenerated. in the final section of the film uh, Billy goes to the expat bar and calls all the other journalists a shower of cunts he lets slip that Wally is gay forcing Wally's hand in leaving the country Billy checks into a big hotel where Sukarno is due to attend an international event before going up to the seventh floor and hanging a banner out the window which reads, Sukarno, feed your people. The Indonesian Secret Service rush up to the room and is Billy thrown out or does he jump out of the window? I think it's neither here nor there. He's basically committing suicide when he puts the banner out the window right. anyway. So True. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it doesn't really matter. No. Billy ends up out the window on the ground, smashed into little uh, <clears throat> pieces. Guy runs over and cradles Billy's broken body. Uh, later on, Jill tells Guy she's leaving on the 2 p.m. flight the next day, and Guy promises that he will be on it too. Uh, the next day, Guy asks one of his remaining office staff to drive him over to the presidential palace so that he can get an interview. As he tries to enter past the palace guards, one of the guards smacks Guy in the face with the butt of his gun, mm. detaching his retina, and Guy is taken to Billy's house to recover. It's fairly gruesome, being smashed in the face with the butt of a gun. This uh, whole scene is very um, Tom Cruise getting his eyes replaced in Minority Report. Mm. Or maybe Perhaps that scene is was... very this. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. I wonder if this is based on the 2000 film... Minority Report, a 2002 film, Through the Power of Time Travel. So Guy is taken to Billy's house to recover. Kumar drops by to let him know that the coup attempt failed and that Kumar, as a member of the PKI, is now a dead man walking. In a final brave act, Kumar drives Guy over to the airport, bluffing their way past a death squad that guns down some suspected communists. Guy gets through the airport and gets on the plane just as they're removing the steps embracing Jill at the doorway. The end. And everyone in Indonesia lived happily ever after. Yeah. I don't give much time to um, a guy and Jill, though. No, that's a holiday romance. It's a year of living dangerously. They were together two weeks. Mm, pretty much. But, I mean, it was the right time to get out of Indonesia. I think they were just about to start massacring yes. all the communists. How much do you remember of all the events or the actual details of the of the communist purge. Um, I remember individual details of stories from the act of killing. Um, just all really well, gruesome stuff. Just the the right wing government employing gangsters to just murder communists. 
Let me let me give you a quick uh, uh, refresher. So the attempted coup came in 1965 at the height of the Cold War. At the time, Indonesia had the third largest communist party in the world behind China and the Soviet Union, and President Sukarno was a big supporter of the PKI. On the night of 30th of September 1965, the PKI assassinated six generals and occupied the presidential palace. As the night continued and their poor organization began to show, Sukarno withdrew his support for the movement. Shortly after, the Indonesian military, led by General Suharto, gained control of the country. From October 1965 to around March 1966, the government-sponsored death squads, as depicted in the act of killing, were responsible for between 500,000 to 1.2 million executions. Uh, they killed anyone labeled as PKI, with which the witch, with the witch trial nature of things, meant more or less everyone was fair game. With very few exceptions, the killings were not spontaneous, but carried out with a high degree of organization, uh, and were carried out face to face, as in Rwanda or Cambodia. Mm. The methods of non-mechanized violence and killing included shooting, dismembering alive, stabbing, disembowelment, castration, impaling, strangling and beheading with Japanese-style samurai swords. Firearms and automatic weapons were used on a limited scale, with most of the killings being carried out with knives, sickles, machetes, swords, ice picks, bamboo spears, iron rods and other makeshift weapons. Hmm. Fun times. Indeed. Yeah, you've just, like, because I've seen the act of killing once. I don't think I'm ever going to watch it again. And um, it's still fairly full on etched in my mind. Like, it's quite yeah, a disturbing film. No, I don't want to see it again. Was there a follow up to the act of killing? There was the look of silence. And what was that about? Well, it features uh, some of the same players, but basically. There is a there's a scene from the act of killing where um, one of the crew members states uh, that his family were murdered by communists and Josh Op- Oppenheimer ex- expresses um, distress that this person would have ended up on the set that day. Uh, then the follow up is that guy who f- basically they bring in perpetrators of the violence into his store. He's an optician. And he basically fits for glasses the people who would have murdered his uh, family. So they shot it pretty much like around the same time that they would have shot the act of killing. Mm. Uh I haven't watched that. It's also very highly regarded, I see. I'm sure it is, yeah. I mean, but like it's they're not exactly laugh riots of films, you know? Yeah. Even though there are parts of it that are funny. I'll say that. Yeah, I remember parts of act of killing were quite funny. Yeah, there's like, uh, because some of the, you know, some of the former gangsters have just deranged imaginations as to how they want their mur- the the crimes portrayed, you know? Yeah. I honestly, this kind of, the year of living dangerously kind of underwhelmed me, if I'm honest. I enjoyed the atmosphere and I'm interested in the story of the, of the coup and the uh, purge. Mm. I like the atmosphere of just a, some kind of, period film of Southeast Asia. But it could also be because I'm in lockdown, so it was just nice again. Well, the, I felt the same way about the second film as well. It was nice to see something different. Hmm. The second film, the uh, 1986's The Mosquito Coast, I enjoyed a lot more, I'll say. I actually 
because I watched The Year of Living Dangerously with my girlfriend and I just reading a tiny bit of the reviews for the Mosquito Coast, I thought that Belen would definitely not like this. I said, okay, but I actually, I found the story really, really compelling, to be honest. Um, it got me from moment one. And I really wasn't expecting it. I was expecting it to be quite boring, to be honest, for some reason. But it really, really grabbed me from moment one. So it is against Peter Weir, based on a book by Paul Theroux that I, I, I scanned a summary of the novel and it seems to adhere fairly closely to it, the script by Paul Schrader, which is like a lesson in screenwriting. The, like I think that the strongest thing it has going for it is the script. I think it's just really well structured. The dialogue is really well written. I mean, it stands to reason he would have taken an awful lot of it from the book, especially considering River Phoenix's narration. Um, but uh, there you go. It's a really, really good script. So it stars Harrison Ford, Helen Mirren, River Phoenix, and some other people. Harrison Ford playing... Ali Fox, who is a brilliant, but he's an arsehole. He's an inventor who's an arsehole. I would, and his kind of archetype is actually yes, agreed. <laughs> um, something similar to one that uh, Mel Gibson would go on to play in uh, the 1990s masterpiece Conspiracy Theory. <laughs> um, is this the fir- is this the earliest you can think of with this kind of character? There must be some 60s counterculture types like this. That Yeah, I suppose it would stem a little bit from that. I mean, this guy seems remarkably Unibomber-ish, no? Yes. Yeah, because he's cl- like clearly a genius of some sort, but he, well, I, he must... He's horribly pedantic, which is something that I he must... annoyed me because it's a reflection of myself. This guy has got to be just based on Ted Kaczynski. He's a very Unibomber type character, despite having a family. But when was when was the Unibomber active? Hmm, that is a good point. I do not know the answer to that. I'm going to say the sick the seventies because I know he was in the MK Ultra uh, trials. You know what the MK Ultra yeah, trials? Yeah, seventy eight to ninety five. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, was that where the CIA were drugging people? Yes, exactly. Um, they reckon uh, Charles Manson might have been involved at some point or another uh, in Harvard. Anyway, so we're introduced to the, uh, uh, his story by his son, played by River Phoenix, uh, who gives us a nice uh, narration voiceover track, which you must have been pleased God. with. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yep. Um, young, young River, what a beautiful young boy. Taken too soon. Yeah, he was a beautiful young man. He was 23 when uh, he died. He was indeed. He died outside Johnny Depp's club, the Viper Room. Yeah, the Viper Room, yeah. Yeah, having had a bunch of uh, cocaine and heroin mixed together, which is what people did back in the day. Snowballs, I believe they were called. Uh, Speedballs. Speedballs, well done. We're introduced to them and their family. They live in a house on a farm. So it's Ali Fox, River Phoenix, their son. Helen Mirren playing mother, or Samantha Fox. And they're two twin girls, and they're older son although he's younger than river phoenix's character anyway they all live on a farm and their existence seems to be driving around getting things from junkyards and building stuff he's kind of a survivalist sort of a a crazy white guy in the hills Uh, even though there doesn't he doesn't seem to be a gun nut maybe that wasn't part of this particular trope when this film was made Uh, but it would certainly fit that part of it these days then one day he seems he's working on for an asparagus farmer supposed to be making some sort of a cooling implement and 
then one day he invents a machine to create ice from fire. Um, this a miracle. Yeah, yeah, it seems to be some sort of a miracle. His farmer boss, uh, Mr. Polsky, which is his actual name, is not impressed in the least. Um, well, he is slightly impressed, but it's not exactly what he wanted him to make. So he's like, yeah, no, not interested. Can you just do what I hired you to do? So then this is we get our proper taste of Ali here. I mean, he's just an insufferable arsehole, really, who just thinks he's too good for America, basically. Um, he thinks just America has just gotten thick and lazy and um, he <clears throat> takes his chip. I'm sure he would love America now. Yeah, I'd say he would. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> it's actually strange watching this uh, film in in that light. I, I never thought about it at that time because the like the, where their story goes is just bananas altogether. Banana Republic, in fact. But then what they do is, I don't know, could you pick up, what was the deal that he made with the poor people? Because all of a sudden... The poor people, the the immigrants who work on the farm picking asparagus, Ali seems to crack up a plan to leave, and then he makes some deal with the farm workers and leaves. Is that fair? I think he. I think he was just going to give them all his stuff, right? Oh, was For that the it? house? I think so. Yeah, because all of a sudden he decides he's going to quit the farm and quit the country, and they all get on a boat to head off to. Is it a made-up country? I know it was filmed in Belize. No, it's not a made-up country. It's on the Mosquito Coast is the coastline of Nicaragua and Honduras. Okay, so what country are they meant to be in? Technically, it would be Honduras now, I think. The border shifted at some point. Because it is a rough-looking gaff, you know? Once again... But as, as you say, with, they I filmed the year in of living Belize, which is like the neighboring country anyway. So it's all in the same area. Peter Weir just loves dropping you in at the deep end, and this film is no exception because the story just, like, 10 minutes, I think something like 15 minutes in, and they're just arriving at a village. They've just upped and left, and that's it. On the boat on the way over, they meet the Reverend Spellbound, whose character will figure uh, fairly prominently in the story as they go on, and River Phoenix uh, strikes up a kind of a friendship with their daughter, who says to him while they're on the boat... Yeah, played by, played by Martha Plimpton. Played by Martha Plimpton. She says to him, I'm go- I think about you when I go to the bathroom. It's a really odd thing to say, but yeah, that's it. She said, I think about you when I go to the bathroom. Which, I mean, she, I think she's trying to say that she you know, it, masturbates it kind about of him or something like that. Like, but it's just a- yeah, it suggests like maybe she's... I don't think so. I think it means that she curls off a giant log. <laughs> <laughs> thinks, thinks this is River that Phoenix. TV that is. <laughs> oh, I can't say I haven't done it myself. <laughs> yeah, I'm also. I'm always going to share River Phoenix from now on. After oh, I think voiding about, I'm my gonna bowels, ta- I'm going to save up that line for the next time I'm single. I think about you when I go to the bathroom. There's a line a man could never get away with. I, but I suppose a woman couldn't either. It's just an odd thing to say. But I mean, it made it into the script. Fair enough, Paul Schrader. Um, it's it's not good. Yeah. Also on the on the boat, Ali displays um, his yeah just complete opposition to religion, and also shows himself to know the Bible quite well, a la Jeb Bartlett from The West Wing. Um, but yeah, religion just is not for him. He's not he's not up for that. I at this point, I kind of started to notice a little bit of a parallel, albeit from the other side of things. So the year of living dangerously is 
kind of indirectly a little bit about American expansionism, you could say. And this film is, despite the fact that Ali seems to be opposed to what America is becoming, this is American expansionism. This is what he's doing here. He's rejecting religion and going off to make himself like make himself his own man by basically, I don't know, exploiting Latin American labor. That's what he's up to. <laughs> yeah, which, who he refers to as savages. Yeah. <laughs> At first in a positive way, and then later on he's like these fucking... Well, he doesn't say fucking, but he's like these... I'm not going to go and live no, with no, these no, savages. It's qu- like, basically what you've got... Did you see the, the film Captain Fantastic? No. You're, I want to watch it. Well, this is like Captain Fantastic, but more of a realistic reputation uh, re, sorry more of a realistic representation of the sort of person who would take their children into the middle of the jungle to live namely a violent domineering psychopath um cuz he's a yeah but he's a bit of a bully from moment 1 and um hmm. you like even to this point so they're arriving at this uh, this city there's a sense of adventure in the film for sure and the town they arrive in is sort of dirty and charismatic in the same sort of way, like the locations in Romancing the Stone, which is the same reference, an unusual reference, but I'm sure you get what I mean. Whereas at the same time, his family are just being dragged behind him. And like Helen Mirren's character in this is borderline pathetic, I would say. Mother, her accent is not great either. Is I did I didn't even pick up on her going for an accent, to be honest. Uh, I was just so sad for her very existence. Anyway, they're in this um, yeah. shithole town, it's fair to say. I think, is that fair to say? Although Trump has kind of ruined that word now. And Ali buys a town from another gringo. Yeah, as you do. He buys a town. They're, for like they're gonna, a couple of dollars or something. Yeah, yeah. And they're going to sail down the river to get to, the, get, get to their town. And they sail, th- they sail through some nice river locations. As I was watching it, I was kind of thinking... This is this kind of film must be some kind of filmmaker's dream. Do you know what I mean? To just be able to go to the middle of nowhere. Well, yeah, you you're kind of it must be uh, must be some kind of filmmaker's dream because you can just go out to nature or well, I think because you're kind of living the adventure of the the characters in the film, you know? Mm. Well, that's what I thought when I was watching it anyway. Yeah, yeah so they get to bugger off into the middle of the yeah, jungle I mean, and I they could, finally it's got to be more exciting it's got to be more exciting to do that than film something in some shithole neighborhood of whichever city in in the u.s yeah or dress up a studio to look like it and right uh, that too well then because yeah then we've got like because the next section of, of the film is you like okay so they arrive out to this town geronimo and it's basic it looks it looks like an already shit town got hit by an earthquake it's just is it even a town who knows but they arrive there and al yeah ali immediately sets everybody to work a la the village building montage in robin hood prince of thieves Mm. That's a, a timely reference. Nice crisp 1992 Kevin Costner reference there. Brian Adams, uh, 12 week number one. I do, I do it for, for you. For pop pickers out there. Indeed, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, then he pu- he puts everybody to work and starts building a village. Like, initially when you're watching it, you're kind of going, well, I was anyways, like, oh, this is going to be just a doomed comedy about how it all just fails. But no, yeah. 
he gets the villagers' shit together really quickly, and it looks amazing. Yeah, the, the village that they end up building looks genuinely like some kind of Centre Parks-esque holiday, holiday resort. Pretty decent. Mm, yeah, I mean, like, okay. I would live there. The montage is, I mean, it's quite a... <laughs> you don't get to see much of the process, but, like, I mean, you know, it seems to be that they built it on the initial location that you saw in the film, so I'm willing to, you know, suspend my disbelief, even though I imagine it was set builders and JCBs that built it, but whatever, you know? Um, so you get to watch the town forming around them and everything's going well, and then all of a sudden, as though a, a screenwriting lesson, a, a, the Reverend arrives, like an mm, antagonist. Reverend Spellgood. Yes, and he arrives and yells at Harrison Ford, I think about you when I go to the bathroom. <laughs> the Lord thinks about you when he goes to the bathroom. No, he starts shouting and he starts to guilt um, some of the natives that are uh, living in this village and um, Ali just tells him to bugger off, basically. He wants no part of his religion in this town and that's just the end of Act One and it's very, very guide to writing a screenplay, you know? So... Are you on board with the film by this point? Yeah, I mean, it's fun and breezy so far. It's interesting to see where things are going. Harrison Ford's a bit of a knob, mm. but uh, overall, it's you're on an adventure and you can feel that sense of adventure. And also the inventions that he's coming up with and uh, the things that they're building out in the jungle are... something is Something positive is happening at this stage of the film. It is pretty clear that... Things are are going to go badly, though. Mm. I you get the sense that disaster is just around the corner. In a predictable enough direction, as well. I think it's fair to say it. Kind of like I mean, yeah. I I think, I mean, he does it to himself, basically. Also, the beach really takes some cues from this movie, doesn't it? It's such a long time since I've watched the beach. Well, I but mean, I feel like there's a lot of. There's a lot of things. There's a lot. I think if you film anything in the jungle, it's going to end up looking a bit like this. That's fair. Um, but I, and also, this is basic. This is a very similar story. It's you know a, a jungle utopia gone wrong. Mm. You know. So then, next, what happens is the ice machine that he made from the start. He builds a gigantic church-like version of it, where and then just starts giving away free ice to all the natives. Who, but he doesn't get quite get the buzz he'd been looking for. He had referred to earlier in the film wanting to present people who'd never seen ice before with ice like a giant piece of jewellery or something. And then he hears from these natives who aren't impressed enough with his gigantic ice machine. I can't stress enough as well, this is huge, this thing. It's like a church or something, isn't it? I mean, it's some fucking massive... Yeah, it looks like a... Mm. It looks like a big rocket... Yeah, right bang in the middle of the jungle. They must have poured a bit of money into this film. I wonder did it make it back? Yeah. No. It cost $25 million and it grossed 14.3. Oof. Yeah. We're... <laughs> I mean, I, 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 apart from the Truman Show, did he have much commercial success? Oh, I suppose Witness would have been a big commercial success I, back then. Yeah, the and this came off the back of Witness. This is, the reason he got this made was Witness, and that's how he got Harrison Ford on board, because Witness was the film he made before this. Mm, yeah, where that uh, the uh, lady gets her lads out. Ah, nice. Uh, yeah, Witness won multiple Oscars. Very few lads getting out in this. Uh, there was a couple of moments, I feel like. 
you because you're out in the jungle things things are going to fall out nice and then it is too late well, you've he seen hears it, about as patrick stewart says in extras <laughs> i've seen everything so he heads he wants to head up to the mountain to this uh, tribe that have never seen anything and hopefully they'll be as impressed at this point i mean the real nasty malicious side of uh, ali starts emerging and he's just weirdly mean to his sons who actually i want to call back to something in a in an odd scene before they build the giant ice machine are seen pretending they're back in america having a having a little town you remember this scene no why what are you referencing so when harrison ford seemingly goes away to get materials uh his sons are seen like starting a little town of their own which has a bank and oh yeah 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 sorry yeah that's right and they're playing with the little native kids and trying to yeah they're playing like a game of society Mm, pretty much yeah yeah. it's interesting the very nice little paul schrader move going on there but then he next thing flashing back again to when he wants to visit these natives peoples he pops up there uh he's horrible to his sons all the way basically i I can't remember the lines but he's basically going you pussies you pussies and it's he calls them he calls them traitors multiple times throughout the film yeah it's just traitors he's just a real nasty piece of shit and then when they get there the ice has melted so he he doesn't get his big moment and they just kind of have to talk shit to the natives because then river phoenix spots some white men in a cage or something in the background so harrison ford slips away to talk to them and figure out what their story is and while river phoenix distracts them by speaking slow i'm talking to a foreigner (laughs) english which is very effective yeah yeah it really works and turns out the the three white guys are captives there but you know i mean we'll learn about them soon enough because back at the village, uh, one of their fellows, I think his name is Mr. Hattie. Is his name Mr. Hattie, the fellow who wears a hat? Mr. Well, Mr. Hattie is the the black guy who's like mm. looking after them and who brings them resources that they need from time to time. Okay, so it's not him picking the fruit and then who sees the guns, but some fella is picking fruit. Oh yeah, no, that's another guy. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I don't know that character's name. And then he encounters the, the uh, white guy and his, if, who was in the native camp all uh, locked up with his two compadres and they have machine guns and it seems like they're coming to stay in the utopian village. And now, this one had a weird effect on me, this part, because I suddenly realized that it is eerily similar to a nightmare I have had different versions of over the years. And and what what happens in your nightmare? Well, it's always something like, I'm somewhere pleasant. Like, it could be, I don't know, in my friend's house from years ago, or in my back garden in Ireland playing football, or, I don't know, in... like uh, on holiday somewhere and for some reason we 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 will let three people come and hang around and then all of a sudden almost the second they arrive we're like oh my god these people are trouble (laughs) and now we're basically we're there's so much trouble that we can't ask them to leave and we're just waiting for the trouble to start the actual trouble and i've had this dream many times over the years and it's just really eerie, and so I, I got—I was thinking, wow, maybe is that some archetypal, you know, 
psychoanalyst's dream structure that many people have because I swear to God, Paul Schrader absolutely nails it. And plus, Harrison Ford's reaction to them is exactly the sort of mad shit you do in a dream to get rid of people. So he tells them all that the whole village has ants. That's it, isn't it? It's very, it's funny that you you mentioned the dream because like the whole thing has, it's got part, partly they have, they have this threat of violence from these three guys because they have machine guns and clearly they're bad guys. But then there's also that kind of like Father Stone from Father Ted energy of just they're just awful to be around <laughs> and so he has to go to the extent of like yeah we've got ants in the whole place we're gonna have to tear the entire <laughs> village to pieces just so you like, leave oh, okay <laughs> yeah it's, it's very i feel like father father ted took a lot from mosquito coast <laughs> i actually I, th- I actually think you that's yeah the the ants thing in particular is like a mad Father Ted excuse. To, uh, yeah, <laughs> we've got ants in the in the in the building, like in the. Actually, isn't that something that Father Ted in the Father Stone episode? They refer to a time where they pretended they were on holidays and they had to spend two weeks in the attic just because yeah. Father Stone was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. <laughs> So they start tearing down the entire village. <laughs> One part of this that I thought was funny is that they do, um, I don't know, they do somebody else's house first. And uh, that guy is like, there's no ants in here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Also, by the time Harrison Ford has gotten back, sorry, half the village has abandoned them anyway. They've all gone off to live oh, with the Reverend. Right, with uh, Spellgood. Yeah, yeah. But then anyway, just when the three boys are starting to look a little bit rapey, let's be fair. Uh, they're eyeing up mm. uh, a young Helen yeah, Mirren. Mother, in, mother. Um, and Helen Mirren was 40. Can you believe that? Back then? At the time of filming. Yeah, time of filming, Helen Mirren was approximately 40. Well, now, uh, she looks 40, I'll say. But also, I suppose I'm surprised just because, wow, that means she's like 90 now or something? <laughs> yeah, that's just definitely that's the correct She's what? She's 75 or something? Oh, okay. Right. Never mind. My mats are off. Then, just as they're getting a wee bit rapey... Yeah, she's 75. Harrison Ford says, okay, your sleeping quarters are ready. And then he shows them along to their room, which it turns out is at the bottom of the big giant ice machine. And he has hatched a plot to uh, basically freeze them to death. Now, I have to say... I'm a little bit on Harrison Ford's side in this. Despite the fact that he makes his son be involved in a murder, this is not a good situation, you know? It's not a good situation. What do you think? I feel like he's heavily responsible for it occurring. Even though it's it's a bad situation, but I feel like Harrison Ford is heavily responsible for it. Yeah, I fair enough. But at the same time, at this point, he kind of has to act, doesn't he? Yeah, he actually says something along the lines of uh, nobody with any bit of spark in them can be oppressed, something like that. Anyway, uh, what happens is the two, the, all the boys inside the thing start shooting and they basically uh, incinerate themselves and then the entire yeah. village blows up in a great big kaboom and then it's all gone to shit. Even the river has been poisoned by the ammonium. Brilliant. Yeah. So then uh, Hattie takes them all in a boat and they have to go up the upstream. At this point, then they, they, like, they go and they go and they go until they get to the sea and everybody is just finally delighted. We're in the sea. We can go back to America, but no. 
Ali Fox decides, no, we're going to stay here. We've got everything we need here. You can see it in his eyes as well that it's going this way. But at the same time, still, nobody quite turns against him. They kind of still go along with his bollocks, which I will say at this point, the passivity of his family began to bother me. Really? Yeah, I just like, and I, as someone, I really did enjoy the film, but at this point, it really quite started to bother me. So Hattie basically has to bugger off. He says, "Fine, you do what you want. Be a bunch of beach bums." So then they start building a house again. The house is basically a houseboat. Hattie even comes back and tells them that the, their house will easily be blown away in a in a storm. It's around this time as well that Harrison Ford, when his family are saying they want to go back to America, he tells them that. America has been destroyed in a nuclear war. Hmm. Now, what did you make of that? It's it's extreme, but this is pre-internet, so probably fairly safe to lie about. Yeah, and I suppose people would have been worried about that at that time. But anyway, it yeah. was the height of the Cold War as well. Mm. But like, yeah, people or was in the Cold War. His sons and daughters certainly seem to believe him. Then all of a sudden, a massive storm starts uh, happening, and they're boat gets blown away and all of a sudden they're drifting down the river with no shelter it's hot outside and yeah it's just a horrible mess of affairs and at this point i'm thinking like i'm just thinking helen mirren's character is just an offensively pathetic individual i don't know how she would have even taken this there's no excuse for her character like um and then just because they think that her, that uh, Ali might be dead, he swims under the boat to get something, and then she finally explodes and just says she can't take it anymore. She can't take it anymore, and her sons kind of rally to her a little bit, and then he comes back, calls them all traitors, and yeah, he makes the boys paddle behind him in a boat. The boys fantasize about killing him. It's all just gone to shit. But I'm still following yeah. it. I uh. Yeah, I mean it's you. It's it's still interesting mm. to see where it's going. But I mean, Harrison Ford is the character is extremely unlikable, and you're very much on the side of the kids and the family. But they're so passive; they do nothing. But they've also been. That's because they've been brainwashed by Daddy. You see, I don't think they are at this point Faja. anymore. I don't think. I think they're just being dragged along. Well, they're being dragged along, but what's the alternative? You're in the middle of the jungle somewhere. They do try to leave, but the, even for the kids, leaving is like abandoning their family. Mm. Or they have to convince their mother. I mean, they're young children. They have to. <laughs> they're in a jungle, <laughs> and they're young children. Yeah, like, River Phoenix's life had elements like this in it already. Yeah, I mean, he was well. He was in the Children of God when he was a kid. Mm. And lived in Venezuela. Then, um, so they're drifting down the river, just a bunch of river bums, and then they hear this music. And you're the, that's actually interesting because the characters on screen's reaction to it were similar to mine because I was kind of going, Is that real? Is that music real? Is that, <laughs> am I hearing that right? I didn't know if it was soundtrack or, or whatever. But then, then they pull up and it's a missionary, and we think, Oh, we're going to see Spellgood's little missionary place. And uh, in a very interesting gambit, kind of um, paving the way a little bit for a later Peter Weir film, The Truman Show, the family approaches the church where they hear the singing come from and they see a bunch of um, of the locals just sitting down watching a televangelist on TV. Is it Spellgood on the TV, actually, in that scene? It, it is, yeah. Yeah, it is Spellgood. 
so yeah that like in a kind of a very meta commentary they park up nearby the church and um they wait for the family to get back uh, spellgood's family gets back later then uh, charlie and his younger brother uh, they sneak in and try to get the attention of uh, emily uh, the toilet yeah, toilet, the, the toilet lady who kind of who basically says to River Phoenix, "Oh, I don't think about you on the toilet anymore," because he says he he doesn't look like the hot young piece yeah, of ass. Yeah, because he's smelly and dirty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she gives him the key to their car, and then the boys approach Helen Mirren and just say, "Look, we got the keys to this car. Let's escape." But in the meantime, Ali Fox has set the bloody church on fire in a perhaps his biggest with a massive dick move of the can of gas. Mm. Uh, so, Which he's also stolen to power their boat. So it's just burning merrily away. And then the Reverend shoots Ali. And yes. He ju- God wins. Yeah. He, the foxes drag his dying body onto the boat and they f- continue to float down the river. One thing that really bothered me in the closing moments of the film is Harrison Ford does not even slightly look like he's dying of a gunshot. Apparently the ending of the book is much more brutal. Oh, yeah? What happens? I think he gets pecked to pieces by vultures. Good God. Either dead or in the process. I guess vultures are carrion. Uh, they, they, they eat carrion, don't they? So I guess he's dead. Poor fella. Mm-hmm. Indeed. I This film really, really took me along for a, a ride when I was watching. I was really enjoying it. However, as I was discussing it right now, I began to notice a bunch of things in it that would potentially annoy me if I watched it again. Namely, why are the families so goddamn passive? I mean, you've given reasons for it there, but uh, I, I don't know. River River Phoenix starts the film talking about just listening to his dad's speeches and thinking and saying, my dad's a genius. Yeah, that's true. So I'd say he's heavily, heavily influenced. They go into the hardware store and uh, Jason Alexander's working behind the counter. Did you? Yes, you yes, that's him? right. I did see that. That was kind of weird. And just all of that, like, it's clear that he really looks up to his dad. Mm. It's a really interesting film. And possibly yeah, like, has been brainwashed to an extent. Yeah, I can't think of... I'm, okay, I know I mentioned the beach, but, like, particularly with the pacing of how this film unfolds like it's a start to fin- to finish kind of adventure you're with the family and you watch yeah. their journey like you know you see you see the whole um sequence of incidents play out you know um i did really really enjoy it when i was watching it it completely took me by surprise um i would say i enjoyed it more uh than year of living dangerously you would be more in the former camp would you yeah, I prefer the year of living dangerously. The the Mosquito Coast is fine, but it just doesn't feel weighty enough to me. And do it's just like a. It feels like like romancing the storm because at least something like that. It's just a kind of a lightweight adventure, whereas uh, a year of living dangerously has the backdrop of uh, an absolutely horrendous set of events in the middle of the 20th century mm. and who do you prefer peter weir or s craig zaller i would oof. s craig zaller is more fun but obviously peter weir makes more lasting art art mm. i'd say that yeah when i was watching <clears throat> looking down through his filmography there's 
Okay, I haven't seen the film Green Card, which looks like it. Oh, I have with Jared Depardieu and uh, Andy McDowell. Is it any good? Yeah, it's an it's a just uh, it's a fairly light, yeah, romantic comedy. It stands out like a sto- uh, like a sore thumb in his filmography. Because mm. like I don't know, even like I, like I said, I, I I saw that film Fearless before. And for me, that just didn't work. But I mean, you could never accuse it of being not interesting, mm-hmm. you know. All right. Mm-hmm. So, so which so? Um, well, I got some. Wait, I got wait. I got a little bit more fun trivia for you. Oh, it's standing in a field. Tell me. Yeah. So the the role of Charlie Fox, the River Phoenix, eventually ended up with. Do you know who that was offered to? I do not. It was uh, offered to Corey Haim. Oh. But. Corey Haim turned it down because he chose to do Lucas instead. I think and I've seen Lucas. You know, you know what supposedly happened on on the set of Lucas. He got molested. Yeah, allegedly raped by Charlie Sheen. That was the that was the supposed story. What? You know about that, surely. I didn't know Charlie Might Sheen. To censor this part. Yeah, allegedly. When was that? Call it friendo podcast is not accusing Charlie Sheen of rape, but just Google it. Didn't what's the other Corey's name again? Corey Feldman. Yeah, didn't he may release a documentary like last year, officially saying yes. a bunch of was Charlie? Was that when this Charlie Sheen thing was announced? Or Corey Feldman has spent multiple years teasing information. And then releasing things that people already knew and names that people already had. Ah, oh, okay, fair enough. But I believe Charlie he also named Charlie Sheen. I think. Like either way, it just feels like at this time in this time period, young actors, young boys in Hollywood, could either end up as Corey Haim or River Phoenix. <laughs> it's like, you know, Corey Haim died at age thirty-eight after being a drug addict for most of his life after suffering horrendous abuse. I mean, it's just it's shocking what was going on. Yeah. Across the board. Uh, other exciting trivia, Justin Theroux supposedly making a TV series of The Mosquito Coast for Apple TV. I saw that. He would make great... Uh, he'd Nephew make a, of a, Paul Theroux. A great Ali Fox, wouldn't he? Mm, yeah, yeah. A nice, muscular... He's the nephew of Paul Theroux? Ali Fox. Well, here you go. One interesting Wait, wait a minute. Is Paul Theroux the Louis films, Theroux's uh, uh, the father? Huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he is. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Go on, anyway. Uh, yeah, one interesting connection between the two films, apart from the fact that they share the same director. Uh, Andre Gregory, who plays Spellgood, is famous for playing Andre in My Dinner with Andre. Huh. Uh, alongside Wallace Shawn, who was almost cast as Billy Kwan in uh, A Year of Living Di- The Year of Living Dangerous. Nice. Mm, there you go. It's trivia. I loved it. And the the Ali Fox role almost went to uh, to Jack Nicholson. Mm. <laughs> Would have been a completely different movie, wouldn't it? <laughs> but the reason uh, Jack Jack Nicholson was offered the the role but backed out partly because he could not watch Los Angeles Lakers games uh, on location. Nice. Yeah. I like that as a reason not to so do there something. There you go. Yeah, he's like, I don't want to miss my Lakers games. Great, good for you, Jack. But also good for. The film audience. Well, Andy, you're really due a win. I really don't mind who wins this one. So what are you bringing to the table? Do you have the coin? I have a coin. Perfect, because it's your turn. So my pick for this week is Land of Mine, 2015 film. 
Uh, it's a World War II film centered on post-war German POWs forced to clear mines in Denmark. I chose this film because I wanted to dip into a bit of... I was just thinking about some World War II stuff. As uh, Scottish comedian Stephen Carlin says, World War II has everything. If you don't like World War II, then there's just no pleasing you. <laughs> I think we sh- we saw that show together. We saw, yeah, we we did, we did indeed uh, go and see Stephen Carlin a few years ago. Uh, all right, cool. That uh, yeah, I, I remember hearing about that when uh, it came out. It sounded very good. Uh, I what I'm bringing to the table is the 2015 crime drama film Deepan by Jack Audiard, which won the Palme d'Or that year. I think um, I've been looking forward to seeing that one for a while. And uh, you know what I say? If you don't like uh, French uh, crime dramas starring uh, three Tamil refugees, then there's just no pleasing you. Thank you. Perfect. Yurt, all right. Good so original thought. Here's uh, your options. You got a five cent or a church. Uh, five cent. Okay. This is a mistake, but yes. It is the church. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many years. I'm never going to win again. Apparently not. I, I kind of, I don't know how I'm. I'm, I'm honestly don't mind. I'm really not bothered this, this week particularly. Ah, uh, well, do you want to... So, so tell, me why, hear, tell me why I could have won. What you could have won would have been 2017's uh, The Captain, which uh, okay. was another, is another World War II film. It's oh. During the co- closing weeks of the war, a young um, paratrooper escapes pursuit of a roving German military um, and uh, gets a captain's jacket and enjoys the, uh, author- the fake authority it gives him. Oh, nice. That does actually sound decent, but... Well, you can never well, watch it now. No, that's gone forever. So uh, I decided to choose a film uh, also by the director of Deepan. What's his name? Jack O'Reilly. Something like that. Exactly, as I said. That's what I said. Yeah, I actually, I think, I don't know if I've watched any of his films, but I'm, I'm assuming you might have seen them all. Uh, um, I've seen a good chunk of them, yeah. I think I've seen four. But, Ah, okay. The one that I really wanted to see and have been meaning to see for the longest time is 2012's Rust and Bone. Oh, excellent. That's one I haven't seen. Yeah, I've been meaning to watch this for a long time, uh, mainly because I'm a big fan of orcas, and it's about an orca trainer lady. Awesome. Yeah, no, uh, that's, that is absolutely the one that was probably biggest on my list. Wonderful. I'm looking well, forward right, to finally good. getting around to I'm, it. I'm happy. I'm happy to get yeah, because I've been, I need... An excuse to watch this. Have you seen his other film? Have you, you've seen none of his other films? I haven't films. seen a prophet. I haven't seen a prophet. I haven't seen the whatever, whatever the one you mentioned last week. The, the sister beat that my heart uh, skipped uh, is, no, is another very good one of his. Well, I mean, this will start you off on wanting to see more of him. I would say. Well, if Deepan is any good, or or if Rustin Bone is any good, we're approaching the two that I cannot actually vouch for. Yeah, but uh, I'm pretty sure they are because you know they're French and. You know the French. You know how the French are good at movies. Deep pan pizza. Yes, indeed, deep pan pizza, and a good way to finish that there. All right, um, <laughs> peace out, brother. Much love. I need to think about pressing it on the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Do please.